Okay, we're going to start with Jay, put Jay on the spot today. So Jay, as a Notify Body reviewer until just a few months ago, what are the things that you were seeing over and over that you wished submitters would do better? Yeah, you know, this is this is a straightforward yet very nuanced topic. Uh, there's just so many, so many parts in here, and I hope we hit most of the items as part of this conversation today. But Lisa, before I answer your question directly, I just want to set the stage in terms of helping our viewers and listeners understand what are some of the dynamics once the file is submitted, right? What happens at the notified body? And I'm giving you the BSI perspective. I doubt it's too different at other notified bodies anyway. But here's the thing. So when you submit it, hopefully your submission has three parts from a very high level, right? So the first part is most likely a cover letter which is very important because that really presents the context of the submission, right? That's very important for the reviewer to understand what's happening. It could be a new CE mark, could be a second generation device by way of a change, it could be a renewal, it could, it, there's just many different things happening. So that setting the context is very important by way of a cover letter, that's one thing. Your entire technical documentation, you have annexes in the MDR that are dedicated to that, especially annex two. So that's from a high level, that's part two. And the other part, if you are submitting to BSI, is what is called, uh, um, there's this two parts to this part three, so to speak. There is an authorization for BSI to review your documentation, right? This is sometimes in the form of a quotation, or there is, um, it, it, could take, it could take multiple forms, but the notified body needs the manufacturer's authorization to proceed with the review, right? So these are the three main parts, and one of the subpart which leads into the technical documentation is what is called the completeness check, right? The notified body spends about half a day performing this completeness check. It is not a technical review. It is, it, it you know, it, it may or may not be even performed by a technical person. So it is a half day exercise where they basically scan through your entire technical documentation, keeping this one master document in hand called the completeness check document and ensure that all the documents needed for review are actually part of the submission, right? So in this case, with, with only a half a day allotted to this exercise, you could have a bunch of three pages titled as your risk management report, and it will pass the completeness check, right? Because yeah, the risk management report's there. The details get looked into it as part of the technical review. So bear in mind, there is a completeness check, which is a half day exercise. There have been discussions at BSI, you know, until the time I left in January, that they wanted to lend more teeth to this completeness check exercise so that some of the teething troubles could be identified up front and manufacturers wouldn't have to waste one of their three rounds. But at the end of the day, I, you know, we believe, strongly believe that it's incumbent on the manufacturer to make a complete uh, submission. Right. With that said, let's let's get on to answering Lisa's questions. What are some of the most frequently seen issues when it comes to technical documentation? And um, you know, not that in, you are are not familiar with this, but I'd just like to draw your attention to the first paragraph in Annex Two of the MDR. Right. What it says is the technical documentation shall be drawn up by the manufacturer and shall be presented in a clear, organized readily searchable and unambiguous manner, right? This is very important. Very often, even when you start reading the MDR, when you start reading Annex 2, you may just ignore that first paragraph before all the details come in. <laughs> but this is where the most problems are identified in technical documentations. And, and manufacturers don't realize what happens is when, when 
you know, important items in the documentation are missing, or if the documentation is organized very poorly, the reviewer spends a lot of time, you know, bouncing back and forth, trying to make sense, trying to find stuff. Sometimes you 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 reference there is a hyperlink in one section, which leads to yet another hyperlink and leaves the reviewer, you know, down a rabbit hole. And at one point, the reviewer is going to get frustrated, and you'll get a barrage of questions just because he or she can't find it. From your perspective, oh, it's all in there, but the reviewer is time bound. And why is the reviewer time bound? If you look at Annex 7, I think it's uh, 4.5.1, it does call for notified body reviews to be time bound, right? This wasn't the case under the MDD. Under the MDR, reviews are time bound, which means a lot of notified bodies have interpreted it as limits on number of questions. So, and, and, and they also have very limited time to complete their review, right? They probably have eight days to complete literally thousands of pages to review. So one of the biggest issues is missing information, information poorly organized, information that's not clearly referenced, uh, or, you know, as in how we used to call it, very consistent chain referencing, which really, you know, takes up a lot of time and raises more questions than anything. Other than that, if you are to think about what is the biggest area where questions are raised? It's clinical evaluation and TMCF. That's a no-brainer. Everybody understands that. A close second is VNB testing, right? And uh, biological safety evaluation. That's that's a significant area. And we'll get into details of this during this conversation. That's followed by uh, labeling and risk management and also certain aspects of manufacturing. Most manufacturers or some manufacturers may not be very familiar with sending and manufacturing related information as part of your technical file under the MDR, you're required to doing that to be doing that. So, so these are the broad areas where you know typical gaps are identified, right? I, as part of this panel discussion and also in answering your questions, I look forward to helping you all understand what are some of the some of the things you could do to you know prevent some of these frequently asked questions and to be sharing some of the lessons learned with you. Yeah, and I think to Jay's point about the organization and being able to navigate it, it's one of the places that always gets shortchanged. So anybody that's in the document preparation and preparing that final one PDF that BSI wants their submissions uploaded in, right, is you really need to give that group time to assemble the documents. You have to have firm deadlines on when all the component parts are done. So you can do that hyperlinking and double checking the hyperlinking and making sure, you know, I like to use a no more than two click rule, right? So if you're reading a section and you have to click to another section, at most you'd want to click to one other item, not have that chain five clicks in order to get to really the, the depth of the information. So you might point to a, uh, a section on biocompatibility and then point to the report, but that would be it, two clicks and then you're done. Um, so give your people time to put that together. <laughs> That's an excellent so, point, Nancy. Nancy, what you said there um, about the one PDF, that's part of the challenge, right? So they're asking for a PDF that's less than 500 megabytes, um, but at the same time asking that all supporting documentation be included. Um, you can have it both ways. <laughs> um, if, if you're going to include everything, you're not, well, maybe for a smaller file where you only have maybe one device or one SKU, you might be able to do that. 
Um, but if you're submitting for a large system with many components, you're not going to be able to get it into that one PDF and have all the supporting documents. It, you can't do it. You know, that is true. And that is a real problem. And I think in MDR times, a single PDF was feasible, was possible under the MDD. But in MDR times, it's virtually impossible. There's just so many different things that you need to submit and with the size limit constraints and everything. I think the idea is to try and keep it to a bare minimum because I myself have seen literally hundreds of documents being submitted, right? Uh, DHFs being submitted as is. Those are the things that we really want to avoid because if it's all just disparate, you know what? The reviewer is going to take a day to try and bookmark everything to facilitate the review. A review for a, a day at, at BSI probably means $10,000 for you if you chose a dedicated review, right? So that's something that you could really do, in, you know, before you send it out. And perhaps even have somebody internally review the documentation who was not connected with putting it together so that it makes sense in terms of a third person reading it. Right. And, and to your point, Ruthann, one PDF in MDR times is likely not possible. But what's important is when you set that context up front is to probably provide some kind of a trace matrix or a roadmap that'll help the reviewer navigate from one point to another. You know, when especially when it comes to multiple documents, maybe your GSPR checklist is spread over multiple documents. But that's where this roadmap or a trace matrix becomes really, really important. Just put yourself in the shoes of a reviewer who really is limited on time, right? They need to understand your story and they need to present it in a form where they can hopefully translate it to a positive recommendation for CE marking. So, you know, do whatever it takes to be enabling them. Like for example, um, on VNV testing, this is a pet peeve, right? For VNV testing, we say, don't just send a summary, send protocols and reports to go with it. Great. Now, like you're saying, Ruthann, if it's a system, there could be multiple reports, right? And this is where the whole trace matrix idea becomes very important, comes in really handy. You know, create a table up front, talk about, you know, whatever specifications and acceptance criteria, you know, from a, yeah, design specs and acceptance criteria. Relate that to possibly in a next column to whatever test protocols and reports and locations for those test protocols and reports. Talk about what versions of the device were used, right? Talk about any deviations that, that may have been encountered and how you uh, rectified or reconciled those deviations. Talk about um, any relevant standards, right? So you could have a really nice trace matrix where you know, the reviewer is not left confused. Okay, what version of the device, of the device was actually tested for all of these tests? They clearly see, and where an older version was tested, you provide a rationale for why that's okay. And that makes the reviewer's job so much easier. And tell you what, for a lot of these legacy devices, I, this is not a secret, but the truth is no reviewer has the time to go through all of the testing, right? If it's provided in a really succinct manner upfront that really doesn't really raise any concerns and is very transparent, chances are somebody is not going to go digging into every one of your VNV test reports, right? Just so that becomes really important. If you are very transparent upfront, provide that neat little summary and then point them to very specific locations in case they want to sample one or two reports. Remember, every audit is just that it's an audit, which means it's a sampling. Nobody is reading every word of the thousands of pages that are submitted, right? So for VNV testing, do submit all your protocols and reports 
whatever is most relevant to the device under consideration, under review, but that that trace matrix, that roadmap up front becomes very important. And don't forget your manufacturing related items, uh, especially process validations. Yeah, those are great points, Jay. And I think um, some of the notified bodies, for instance, BSI has a really nice companion document that goes like that, their good guidance document, which helps guide some manufacturers into how to break down that data, you know, how to organize some things into um, some of those parts. So um, definitely, um, a good tool as well, you know, especially if you were um, sort of new to the MDR space, you know, or maybe a smaller resource limited manufacturer, um, some great documents to really kind of help guide um, some of that outlining, you know, to put it into the structure so it's easily reviewable from a notified body reviewer with those summary sections, you know, with all that great data up front with those, with those pointers to where to find those. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what other challenges are you seeing that manufacturers are having as they create these MDR submissions? Is there anything we missed? You know, let's let's talk about legacy devices. And I'm looking at my notes here on the other screen. Legacy devices are the ones that run into the most challenges when it comes to MDR, right? You Perhaps you have a risk analysis that's 10 years old, which likely won't meet today's requirements, right? And some of the very early MDR reviews at BSI, what we saw is, they were structured in the way of being a gap analysis, right? Maybe they saw that, oh, BSI quoted only four days for this MDR review, and maybe they talked to somebody, who knows, right? And they structured the review or the submission as if it was a gap analysis to the MDD. Please do not assume that the reviewer has access to all of the files that you've submitted in the past. That's a wrong assumption. Secondly, an MDR, is an MDR application and eventual recommendation is supposed to be as a new application, right? So they're looking at it as if it's a new <clears throat> submission and not as a gap analysis. So that's one thing that can that can really help. Um, so so yeah, for anybody putting together files for legacy devices, bear that in mind. Um, one area where manufacturers frequently stumble, especially for legacy devices, is VNV, including biological safety evaluation, right? This, there's no clear description of how the changes over time have affected any of your biocom data that may be from back in 2008, right? There's no clear description of why the VNV test data that are a few years older are actually representative of the device that is under investigation currently. So that kind of a discussion becomes really important and is frequently missing, okay? And, um, and, and in the same way, it's, it's standards. I know this is a hot topic and I wanna clarify a couple of items when it comes to standards. Uh, especially when it comes to risk management or a 10993 testing or anything else. Um, manufacturers, especially for legacy devices, and it seems like I'm beating up on legacy devices today, but um, you know, you may you may only be able to claim compliance with an older version of the standard, right? And as a result of which you as a manufacturer may just come out and say, oh, you know what? Compliance with standards is voluntary anyway. So we're not going to we're either not going to call out that standard at all, or we're just going to claim compliance with the harmonized version, which in this case works better for us because the harmonized version is an older version of what is now a newer version of the standard. And uh, you can look up MBCG 2021-5 that talks about, uh, you know, standards being voluntary and, and all of that. And it is true, uh, you know, going from the MDD to the MDR, there is focus on harmonized standards. Going from the NDD to the MDR, 
you know, compliance with standards is still voluntary. That really hasn't changed. But if you look at Annex 7, 4.5.1, the last paragraph in there, right? Just before 4.5.2, there is a statement in there saying that the notified body shall take shall take into consideration common specifications, harmonized standards, uh, even if the manufacturer does not claim compliance to the same, right? So what it's saying is there are aspects of standards that are reflective of state of the art. If it's a vertical standard, it may be an objective performance criteria or uh, you know, it may be recommendations around design of certain aspects, like for example, 80369 for the lure standard. There are changes being made to the standards and updates being made to the standard for a certain reason, right? If you aren't compliant with the most updated version of the standard, the notified body at a bare minimum is going to expect you to present a gap analysis and a discussion for where you're not compliant and why that is okay. I tell you what, even if a version of a standard is not harmonized, this practice varies across reviewers, but don't be surprised if you are hit with a nonconformity or get a question around the latest version of the standard. And the concern is either lack of acknowledgement or you know incomplete gap analysis or something related to design slash safety not being addressed. If it's something like a change to an optimized clinical uh, preclinical model or an, a change to a certain setup for a test method. Some of those items can be justified, but when it's aspects relating to safety, most likely reviewers are gonna hit you up with a serious question or a nonconformity around it. Even if you chose to ignore uh, that standard or chose deliberately, to not claim compliance to a particular standard because there is that provision by which notified bodies need to look into it. And that's, like I said, in Annex 7 of the MDR. So these are some of the challenges that legacy devices face. So I'm, I'm sure the panel here has more examples. Yeah, I, I find one of the things going through the old test reports, I have a hard time even understanding which version of the device was tested. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times I'm tracing it back by date the date the test occurred, when, what was the change control going on at that time, what this test method actually was. So I've seen test reports that are 20 years old and it says set up per standard protocol, right? But yeah. I can't find that standard protocol. So I have a hard time doing that gap assessment to today's standards. And I think the other thing that I've seen is they go retest knowing that the test report is inadequate and then it fails the new standard. So now I've got a product that doesn't meet the expected things. And, and those have all been challenging with some of these older products or older test reports. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, uh, the older ones don't have the sections that the newer ones have that make it easier, I think, for the reviewer. So like in newer reports, you'll see like an executive summary. Um, you'll see a very clear list of what was tested and why um, to present that like worst case challenge um, and, and how you determine that. Um, it'll have a results and a conclusion section and that makes it really easy to summarize. Um, but there are some reports that just are more of like a data dump where you really have to know what you're looking at to determine what the result was and what the conclusion is. There's just a lot of assumptions um, built into the older reports. I have a question from the audience. 
How does the MDCG 2021-5 then align with Annex 7 4.5.1? Right. <laughs> Talking about alignment, that's that's a tough one, right? The MDCG guidance is, again, every MDCG guidance out there in, in on the front page says it does not reflect the views of the commission, right? Uh, but that said, it is it is a guidance. It's just like the M the med devs to the MDD. So as far as alignment is concerned, you know, I I wish it would have been a lot more specific in terms of hey, if there is a safety related change to a standard, you know, you you really need to seriously consider it or you know provide a mitigation for it. Versus some of the other you know some of the other changes in the standard that are not so much design slash safety reflective. Didn't get that level of um, clarity from the MDCG 2021-5. Nancy, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you have to think about it too. But having been there, done that in terms of a review, right? A reviewer looks at it from multiple angles. It's not just the manufacturer's angle. They look at it from the perspective of the patient, right? They also look at it from the perspective of what is important to be presented in their report so that there is no concern or there is no risk to continued certification once your certificate is issued for the period of three years or five years or whatever it may be, right? And there are certain expectations. Like, for example, I cannot point to you where this is written down, but every time DSI has got an audit from either joint assessment teams or you know whoever is auditing them, the assumption is that the latest version of the standard is state-of-the-art. That conflicts with what the MDR and the MDD says, harmonized standards. The harmonization process lags behind, whether we like it or not, right? So, so this is what I'm saying. I cannot give you a good answer to how it aligns. The truth is it's not completely aligned because the MDR requires the notified body to you know, look at these standards because those are presumptive ways to meet state-of-the-art, right? Even if you don't claim compliance. So the answer is right there. Do not ignore the latest version of the standards. I can give you an example. So for example, in the heart valve standard, right? This is not an example that everybody can relate to, but just, you know, when I say heart valve, think of XYZ device, right? The last page of the standard talks about objective performance criteria, and it deals exclusively with a list of about six items that are very specific to patient safety those frequently get updated. They've been updated from 2005 until the 2021 version of the standard has been released. And those criteria have been significantly tightened, right? So if any manufacturer comes and says, oh, you know what, reviewer, uh, the harmonized version of the standard is, is you know, back in 2013, so I'm only going to meet that. That's, that really wouldn't fly. And you, you can probably even throw your lawyers at it. And I'm saying that because I've been involved in these conversations, right? Um, and you can say that, okay, we're, we're only going to meet the harmonized standard. The truth is, if the auditing body, not BSI, right, the bodies, the, the regulators that audit BSI, if they look at it and they find that it's not really meeting the latest OPCs and new standards are published for a reason, right? And more often than not, for a lot of these technologies, there is there are publications out there. You have you know good and bad publications. All you need is something out there in the public domain that casts a little bit of shadow on something like this. And at the end of the day, it's a cumulative effect, right? Everything put together can eventually risk your certification. Long-winded answer, but what I'm saying is 
there are multiple considerations than to just saying that, you know, the guidance is saying it's voluntary and I'm going to ignore this for X, Y, Z reasons. And chances are those reasons are serious. It'll most likely get you into trouble. Uh, so please do not ignore any new version of the standard. Yeah, I, I think what I've seen in the past is if you try and write your justification that this is just a guidance or it's not a harmonized standard, and that's your rationale. You can't enforce that. That never flies, right? That always is yeah. going to get you. They're going to find a way to write that as you didn't comply with this part of the MDR. <laughs> if, however, you take that new standard and you write your justification from a patient perspective on why your device, right? This standard was still written for a general category of products, not for your individual device. So if you can distinguish, my device has different features, this isn't appropriate, this is a more appropriate test because it's gonna protect the patient with this specific device. I've seen that argument work much better. Mm -hmm. We have another audience question attached to the one you just talked about. Mm -hmm. um, MDCG 2021-5 attempts mm -hmm. to provide several definitions for state-of-the-art all legally non-binding. In absence mm -hmm. of a legal definition, we have seen various interpretations of state-of-the-art during notified body audits. Would mm -hmm. MDCG guidance documents be considered a state-of-the-art? I agree the latest version of the published standard should be considered, but what about other guidance documents like MDCG? Will be considered, most certainly. State-of-the-art doesn't really mean gold standard. Everybody understands that, right? It means a demonstration with objective evidence that whatever uh, you know pathology you're providing a therapeutic option for yields a positive benefit risk within that intended patient population that's you know that's the understanding of state of the art there is a definition in one of their mdcg guidance i believe it's dash six um or maybe another number but there is a definition of state of the art that the mdcg guidances provide you now in addition to 2021 -5. So it's not any one thing, really. It's everything put together. I, you know, I don't really have a better answer for that. It comes down to, you know, is your technology providing adequate benefit risk? That's, that's the end of every review, right? And if you're able to show that through standards or like Nancy said, if you, if you have a justification for why your test method or your approach is over and above what is prescribed by a standard, you can, you know, you can choose to ignore something, but it's got to be based on sound rationale. Like, for example, let me take a QMS example. You don't, you don't have to have ISO 13485 certification for you to be able to hold an MDD slash MDR QMS certificate, right? But still, 99% of manufacturers will have an ISO certificate because that gives you the confidence in your quality system to then you know show that okay this is our base basis here 13485 level and then we incorporate whatever requirements are there in the MDD and the MDR it's just the same way it'll come down to the strength of your justification and the rationale around it I hope okay. I hope that helps but if not I'm very willing to you know engage in a conversation with this person offline yeah so back to technical documentation um, are there any solutions and best practices that we didn't cover already? Anything Actually, you know that what? you have found? There are many areas. I'm not. I'm not sure we can cover everything here today. But I, I wanted to draw um, our viewers' attentions to attention to 
manufacturing process validations. This is, like I said, this is something uh, some manufacturers may not be used to including in their technical file, right? This is where having a, a master validation plan and submitting that becomes really important. It really helps the reviewer hone in on what the critical aspects of the process are. Please do submit your um, protocols and reports for your process validations. One thing that may come as a surprise to some of our viewers and listeners may be uh, notified bodies asking for incoming inspections, in-process inspections, and final, uh, final inspections. Uh, the argument against it is what the QMS auditors look at it anyway. Why, why does it need to be part of the tech file? It's just once again, it's uh, it's not part of Annex Two, and this is this is where maybe some of you could get a little confused. It's actually part of Annex Seven, where notified bodies are supposed to be looking at that. All right. Um, other than that, implant cards tend to be a really hot topic. Right. That could be just another another uh, session for discussion. Implant cards. There are questions, uh, significant questions that get raised around uh, device lifetime. Right. Uh, that often tends to be neglected, the actual definition of, of device lifetime and showing through your PMS activities, PMS slash PMCF activities, how device lifetime is actually met. Uh, one other area that is hot in the MDR is CMR substances, right? Um, I Personally, I've seen statements in the biological safety evaluation report saying that, oh, we don't have any CMR substances. Well, that's great. That's a start but the reviewer wants to see objective evidence by way of starting with chemical characterization, you know, what components or what, you know, what items have been identified as potential CMR substances. If none have been identified, show that objective evidence and then make that claim, right? If some CMR substances have been identified, they really want to see if it's below 0.1% weight by weight. Um, so please talk about, um, you know, what was identified and, provide the quantified levels as well when it comes to CMR substances. Um, those, those are some of the items that I have from my notes here. You know, tons of questions around, around uh, clinical evaluation, but I think that's, that's a whole other session. If I am to think about going from MDD to MDR, right, there are significant requirements around um, information to be supplied with the device, which is labeling an IFU, please every line in GSPR 23. That's just very, very important. Um, that's one thing. The one other significant change from the MDD is helping the reviewer understand the various design stages of the device. You know, if, in, if, it's, if it's a legacy device, helping the, dev the, uh, the reviewer understand, you know, how the generational evolve evolution of your device. How do you get from Gen 1 to where you are today? That is important to be able to demonstrate the principle and mode of action. It, it wasn't really required under the MDD. You've got to do it under the MDR. Uh, like I said, all validations and verifications, including manufacturing. When it comes to biological safety evaluation, talk about your worst case model. Do not ignore your manufacturing processing aids, cleaning aids, all of that. The MDR is big on plans. There's nine different plans in there. Risk management plan. Make sure you include your plans, all your plans, you know, ranging from risk management plan to your clinical development plan, which could just be a part of your clinical evaluation plan. And like I said, your clinical evaluation plan. Device-specific uh, PMS slash PMCF plans tend to be missing. You have these generic PMCF plans that flew under the MDD, won't fly under the MDR. Um, 
uh, and then and then having a really nice presentation for your VNB testing along with the traceability matrix. I think these items will will help you a long way in avoiding some of the very typical questions that are raised. And remember, you only have three rounds, so please a full a complete set of documentation that is clear and unambiguous, organized, so that you don't raise one round of questions in the reviewer just asking for documents. Because then you have only two rounds. If they don't, if they cannot close your review in three rounds of questions, that leads to a refusal, which means you have to restart all over again, time and money and effort, right? Jay, that was um, great detail, I think, that you provided, right? to uh, viewers on what needs to go into the check file and how like those pitfalls and sort of the best solutions. If I could just take a step back um, from that, I think for manufacturers, just from the word go, understanding really what's changed between the MDD and the MDR to understand where those changes are, look at what data and documents you have um, and consider the relation of those to understand really where are your gaps, right? Um, and some of that timing. Uh, Jay, you made a great point. Um, you only get three rounds of questions. So if you're looking at, um, let's say, for instance, PMS and PMCF and CER, right? Everyone knows it's a hot topic. If you're looking at your data and your data periods, you know, your reports aren't aligning, your, your data is kind of all over the map. If you submit that in your tech doc so it gets to the reviewer, right? They're going to come back most likely with rounds of questions in your first round of questions, asking stuff kind of just about that basic data relationship, you know, the state of the art um, of your products, right? Some of those basic things that you could avoid in that round of questions, if you sort of take that, look at the deep dive, but take that from the get-go, just kind of take that really holistic review of what do you have in terms of data to meet the requirements and how are you assembling that before you even get into like those weeds of, you know, the, all the specifics of how am I formatting that? You know, do I have all of my BNB reports that I put on my good summary? But really just even understanding, you know, what do you have to present and where your gaps are and how how can you best present that so that you aren't um, getting into that pitfall of wasting a round of questions on um, what I'll call administrative type details. Yeah. Ruthann, what have you been seeing for best practices? Um, yeah, so just to touch on something Melissa said with the data, you know, under MDD, um, you could submit very siloed documents um, as part of your tech file. And I see Jay smiling there because he knows what I'm talking about. So, you know, I remember putting together, you know, MDD tech files and you would, you know, take data from, you know, the various um, uh, departments or subject matter experts um, for their part. And that was acceptable. That you can't do anymore. So once you have it all together, it all has to gel. So they want to look at the same like time periods for, for how you pulled your data and things like that. So it's really important that um, you don't submit siloed information and make sure that as information comes in, it actually aligns and gels with the other parts that you've received from other um, subject matter areas. Um, because you, you will get a lot of questions around that. And then to Jay's point and Melissa's point, you burn a whole round trying to explain um, why that happened. Um, the other thing I would say, Lisa, um, you know, in retrospect, so initially, I thought, oh, like one tech doc summary would be so nice, right? Like it's like a little book, you know, you have your uh, 
index and you have all your sections and then you have your list of appendices and it, it's all nice and in one document. But in reality, in, in seeing how this has played out, um, I think a better approach would be to break out your tech doc summary into multiple summaries. Um, so whether you follow, say, like in this case, we're talking a lot about BSI. I'm sure other notified bodies have their own checklist. So whether you're using the checklist as your guide or you're using Annex 2, however you're, you're uh, structuring that, I think it would be much better to break out those sections into smaller chunks and have summaries related to those sections Going back to Jay's point that when you do your linking to um, attachments, you're able to take them right from a hyperlink to that document. Um, when it's spread out over multiple files, it's really hard and confusing to do that. Um, and I can see where it might get frustrating in the review. So that's just one takeaway. I think if I could do it differently, I would definitely do separate summaries. Yeah, I mean, from, an from an organizational standpoint, I think where there's some cross-functional talk and that cross-functional review. So even though, right, you might not be in the risk management group, but if you're the clinical group and you're reviewing that risk file, you, you become, bring to it a different perspective and you're going to identify those terms that are different or things that are missing based on your perspective. So I think the cross-functional review is important. The other is I think a clear decision-making process because this is so linked, if it, each silo is making their own decision, you're gonna have a really disjointed submission in the end. So a way to say, this is how we're gonna resolve it. It also gets you out of that spin cycle, right? I wanna do this and everybody goes shift and then somebody else says, no, we're gonna do it the other way. And everybody goes and revises all their documents that, for the file, right? So if you just define who that's gonna be and how that process is gonna work and get communicated, I think that solves a lot of problems um, that we've seen for people that were kind of struggling with that in the beginning. Um, couple, the other is I just, as you talk about Ruthann, all the different files, like this is where I really think the IMDRF table of contents in the future, if every device manufacturer was following the same outline, makes it easier for the reviewer to find things. It makes it really discrete packages that you can do section by section and then put together. That's a very good point, yeah. We have a question from the audience. Will the notified body expect CER and PMS data to be updated if older than six months if the notified body cannot review within a reasonable time frame? Short answer is yes. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. sometimes your you know, file will sit for six months before it gets picked up. You're, you're in queue, right? Um, but what I've seen, and this is this has been a consistent observation, is as, as part of the clinical oversight process, as part of panel review, and this is all bearing in mind that these files are going to get audited, right? They they don't like PMS data that is older than six months. So you know, tough luck if your file sitting for more than six months, but or your file sat for a month, but your review process went on for a year, you are going to get a question around, can you please give us updated PMS data? Yeah. Any best practices from the panel on that whole situation, how to manage it? 
uh, automate your data pools so that they all come in, right? It's worth the time to plan it so that the updates aren't as onerous. You're gonna spend a lot more time getting the system set up, but if you have a consistent way to code your data and you're not having to do a lot of manual manipulation of it at the end, it's a lot easier to update. If you think, really think about it, right, you should be, and again, there is one of the articles, I think it's 87 or 88, actually talks about trend reporting, right? So you need to be monitoring this on a periodic basis. Secondly, you're going to be having multiple management reviews within a year anyway. So I am not sure, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm oblivious to some of the issues that there may have, that the manufacturers are facing in terms of uh, PMS data updates, but this is a question that really, at this point, we all need to be ready for because once it's six months and older, we're going to get a request for updated data. Some of it's around the trends-related item, but some of it's also to satisfy the requirements of, you know, the regulators who audit these notified bodies. Yeah. What about the expectations around all of the data lining up? Like CER, PMS, risk management, yeah. seems like too much to ask for. It is tricky, right? Say if, if you have a high risk device, your CER is likely going to be updated every year and you may need to also provide a PSUR every year. So in bearing that in mind, if you have a mechanism whereby you align everything, say for example, for your PSUR, you, your PSUR submission cannot be I think it's either two or three months later than what that last data cut was. So if there is a way to align your CER and PSUR updates, I think that would make the most sense. Uh, but yes, there there is going to be a lot of duplication of information and that always calls for confusion. There's got to be a way uh, to manage that under your QMS. I think it can start with aligning all of the, uh, you know, CER, PSUR, and where needed, SSCP updates um, to one time and maybe it can go maybe you can align with the with the anniversary date of your certification maybe a couple of months before that so that you have things lined up for submission by the time the anniversary date rolls around mm -hmm. yeah, I think from a best practices I've seen people issue a calendar that says we're going to do these product lines in these specific months of the year and then it's always, right, all the documents go on the same cycle. They're all coming together at the same time. They can be reviewed together. Mm -hmm. It just makes it nice if you've defined that. Now, it doesn't help if the notified body comes back and asks for an update six months later. <laughs> that calendar uh, practice has worked really well with clients that have robust portfolios as well, right? Smaller organizations that have one or two products, it's a bit easier to wrangle all of your data together you know, even with alignment, but if you have a very large portfolio with hundreds of products, um, putting those into those families and putting them into a structured, you know, I'm going to do these in this month or this quarter really helps uh, organizations to be able to organize and update that, um, that data. So if, particularly if you get a request that comes back, you know, to provide more data, it's easier to pull because you already have a set um, chunk of data that's been in place. Um, a few comments from a IBD manufacturer maybe not thinking it lines up with what we were talking about. Uh, the notified body will accept IBDD PMS, so they told us. Um, MR requirements once a year, so not multiple management reviews. And PMS, no requirements under IBDD, only IBDR required for 
Class C and D once a year, so PMS reports under IVDD are fine for at least another year post-IVDR implementation. Yeah, so you do have, right, the IVDR kicks in 2022 at the moment. We haven't heard any, any official delay. Um, so, but your A's and B's are still going to have to have a post-market surveillance plan of, you know, starting next May. And then you're going to have to do your post-market surveillance reports for your A and B's and your periodic safety update reports for your C's and D's. Um, so, yes, there are organizations that do an annual management review and that can be deemed okay. It's really going to depend on your products and what's happening with them and how quickly things are changing. Um, understanding under the IVDR you're going to have your strategy for regulatory compliance and you're going to have to be able to demonstrate that you're following that. So what should people be doing right now to ensure their risk files are ready for MDR based on the findings that we're seeing so far? Yeah, this is, this is an interesting one. Uh, a lot of reviewers have been asking for compliance to 14971-2019, right? Um, and most manufacturers are compliant with 2012. So if, if you have a really large product portfolio and if it's going to take you three months for this particular product, what I would suggest is um, do it at a bare minimum during your initial submission itself. Don't wait for it because you're going to get a question no matter what right? Uh, unless you have a strategy around timing. So please do a gap analysis between 2012 and 2019 and uh, be upfront about where the gaps are and explain how that impacts um, whatever risk mitigation activities, you know, it, be it your VNV or your clinical evaluation or considerations for PMCF, all of which funnel into your benefit risk analysis. So I would say at least at a bare minimum, do a gap analysis and discuss the same in your initial submission. Yeah, I think the other thing we've seen is notified bodies pushing back on your risk, not so much, even if they accept the 2012 compliance, but if you haven't updated your risk file in three years, we're oh. hearing feedback <laughs> that that's not okay, that yeah. you should be doing it when you update your CER, when you update your post-market data. And so, even if there's little changes, right? Update your risk management report date. It's gonna make it easier for you. <laughs> Don't send in an old report. Right, right. Uh, Melissa, what are the smaller manufacturers struggling with and what should they do to optimize their tech docs? Yeah, so um, specific to smaller manufacturers, I think requirements related to PMS and PMCF have really been a struggle. Um, most particularly PMCF, right? Because they're just not prepared with the, the level of planning, the very specific plans that you have to have for each device family, the amount of data that you need to gather. Um, they're finding that they have bigger gaps between their PMCF plans um, or planned activities and the clinical data that they have and there's not um, sufficient activity or data. And so now they're stuck in a pinch because the deadline is looming and they don't, um, you know, they have to be able to have a plan to gather data quickly. Um, so that's really, I think that's one big area, again, PMCF and PMS, like the planning and understanding the level of documentation and getting um, the appropriate plans in place in time. Um, and just some general um, documentation, 
uh, formatting. So a lot of, um, I've seen a lot of smaller manufacturers work through their tech docs and as they're updating uh, their product, they're doing it in supplements as opposed to updating one large file. So now having you know this one PDF type approach or mentality is a struggle for them because they're trying to take multiple versions of a document and roll it into one and give that history of the legacy device. And you know here's where my product has come from, here's my current product and um, correlating those test reports and you know leveraging that legacy data and explaining though this is the version of the product that was tested this is my version of product i have today and this is why my previous testing was really um is applicable as we had talked about before um those are two areas where i see uh, those manufacturers really kind of struggling right now to um, to comply uh, on it, uh, within the deadlines um, yeah, i think i've also seen it's really lean right they don't have a lot of resources to do it uh, Yes, absolutely. Okay, we are over time. Any final comments from anyone before we wrap it up? You know, we, we didn't talk too much about clinical, so let me just give you a really quick snapshot. I know this is an extensive area. I can't really do justice to it in, in two minutes, but this is the biggest area for questions. And uh, some of the higher risk implantable devices tend to be a lot easier because more often than not you have clinical data on the same but when it comes to or or cath lab you know the general quote-unquote accessory type devices or surgical instruments manufacturers in the past have relied on the actual index procedure right and procedural success with that index procedure to indirectly justify safety and performance of these instruments or accessories or whatever we may call it that's not going to fly anymore right you're obviously you still have a dedicated technical file under under the mdr but the requirements are just so specific you're going to have to somehow um it's easier said than done but we've been doing it but somehow decouple you know the safety and performance specifically based on the intended use of your accessory slash um, instrument right and then and then write up your clinical evaluation focused on the instrument itself it 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 may not make too much sense, but that is a requirement that if, if there is a certificate for this device, if there is a CE mark dedicated to this device, you need to be able to talk about a clinical evaluation specific to that device. So that's one thing manufacturers typically have trouble in. So something to bear in mind, decouple safety and performance from the index procedure, focus on the subject device, one thing. Secondly, what is really classical on the clinical front is, if a manufacturer is relying on literature data primarily, right? It's very hard for the manufacturer to map to what version of the device was it was this data actually generated, right? What was the actual sample size? Some of those fine details that reviewers look for, right? Were all, did the literature truly cover all the variants of this device, right? Um, or if you're choosing to use a worst case, clearly describe that the worst case or the data is representative of the worst case. In this case, it's the other way around. So because typically reviewers have a hard time understanding, okay, which version, what models were was is this data that I'm looking at from, right? So that mm -hmm. that tends to be that tends to be a, a significant item. And just like you approach VNV testing, I'm looking at my notes here. Once again, a trace matrix really helps to help the reviewer understand what data was generated on what models, where some of the gaps are. A lot of manufacturers will try to just provide an aggregate sum of data because they don't want to point out gaps, right? And uh, 
I haven't been in an industry, I know that's been the standard approach in the past. Give them as little as possible and let them ask the questions. You know, that is not going to fly as of today and under the MDR. Because the first thing the reviewer does when they get this agglomerate, so to speak, of evidence is they're going to sit down and create a table themselves. I've done it myself. I'm telling you every reviewer does this when they don't see the level of detail they need because they need to fill out very detailed forms at their end. So they're going to create a matrix for themselves. They're going to line up all the models, all the variants, all the data sources, all the data from each of these sources, and they're going to figure out the holes for you. And in the process, they're probably going to charge you ten to twenty thousand dollars because it probably took them two days, right? I'm not making this up. This is this is the reality. So you know, be very upfront and clear about your sources of data and how they match up with all your models and variants. It's very important. Along with that, don't ignore the intended patient population. Under the MDD, we were happy with seeing device success, right? And in the end, the benefit risk analysis was a boilerplate positively the benefits positively outweigh the risk that's not going to fly anymore because there is a significant focus on patient clinical benefits in fact if you look at annex 14 part a i think one of the uh, bullet points under the cep even before they get to talking about an indicative list and specification of parameters which basically translates into safety and performance objectives there is a bullet point before that aspect that talks about a detailed description of benefits afforded to the patient right there is a lot of emphasis on patient benefits in addition to the safety and performance aspects that are device specific right it should have been the same under the mdd maybe even five years ago that's where we are for the mdd today but there's a renewed focus on patient benefit aspects when it comes to the mdr other than that i'd say do not lose focus on your device lifetime right especially because that now needs to be communicated on the implant card it needs to be of course, it needs to be in your CER, but it needs to be on your, on your implant cloud and your SSCP. So that is public-facing information, right? And then PM, PMCF plans, specific PMCF plans, uh, catering to that device lifetime aspect. Now, this is a question I frequently get from manufacturers. It is, it is a, an implant, and it's supposed to be in the patient for the lifetime of the patient, be 30 years. Are we supposed to do a 30-year follow-up? I would say... Yes and no. It really depends on how mature your technology is. Say, for example, if it's a cardiovascular coronary stent, this technology has existed out there. And you can easily argue that the technology reaches a level of quiescence sometime between the three to five year period. Right. So there is some justification to be made there. Uh, try and leverage physician guidelines, not only for your state of the art discussion, but also in terms of justifying the length of your PMCF and the lifetime considerations of your device. All right. Those are some of the things that I wanted to talk about from a very high level perspective for a clinical. Did not want to ignore that because that is one of the biggest buckets as far as lessons learned um, is, you know, is concerned. So, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Jay. Thanks to the panel.